Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. So uh, that was our limit. So we took off and uh, started started upriver. And at this point, it's the same thing. We're, we're marching mostly in the river, sometimes on the riverbank if it's cleared. But now the canyon walls are closing in on us. The ravine is getting uh, smaller, and the walls of the ravine are getting taller and steeper on the sides. So as we're going up, the river is getting smaller and smaller. We're beyond a point where we could raft. In fact, that's why we left our rafts, our kayaks, and uh, inflatable kayaks, because now the stream, at some places it's it's wide and deep, but in other places it's narrow and it's just a little waterfall. We're passing waterfalls one after the other, climbing up them. And so we're going on for the next two or three days, camping actually in the canyon because there's no way to climb out to find a place that we can uh, set up our tents. So that's a danger in itself. And in fact, the native that we're with is terrified because he's never been in canyons like this. He's from the lowland. Amazon Basin. But he does know that if we ever had a flash flood, you know, it would just take us with it, even the rains that we had before. But we're lucky and there's nothing else we could do. So I think the third day or fourth day, and we're just continuing, we're trying, there's no way, there's no no place to hunt. We have rock walls on the sides of us. Uh, many times we're, we're trying, when there's waterfalls, or pools that uh, have no bank on the side. We're having to actually scale the the rock walls and then shimmy along narrow ledges to get past those places. A couple of times we've fallen and and slid down uh, and had to uh, swim back to a place we could try it again. Uh, There was one point that was kind of funny in in a not funny way. So Eddie, Little Bird, Myself, the other guy's name was Marshall, the guy that funded the program, an American guy. He was a bull of a, of a guy, but very short, but this muscle-bound guy. We're continually having to cross the river from one side to the other because get too deep on one side and we have to cross to the other where it's shallower or there's a bank on the other side. So we're continually crossing back and forth across the river. And in one place... And the, the water is getting, the river is getting swifter and swifter and narrower and narrower. And there's one place where we had to cross where it's uh, maybe waist high on me, almost chest high on me, but super swift. And so we cut some staffs down that we could stick in the water to try to hold this. And below us is a, a number of waterfalls that we've been able to scale to get around. So as we're crossing, this happened more than once, but I remember this particular time. As we're crossing, uh, we're holding these sticks jammed in the rocks to try to hold us until we got across. Eddie Littlebird, he was able to get across. I got across. And then Marshall, 
being shorter than us, almost made it, and then he was swept away in the swift, rapid water, uh, which maybe isn't so bad, except the packs that we're carrying are dry bags. A dry bag is what you carry in a raft that uh, keeps things dry. You put your gear in it, and then you cinch the top in an airtight seal, and then it, it actually is airtight. And these, the ones that we had had straps on, uh, they had a waist strap to clip to you to, so you carry most of the weight on your waist, and then a chest strap so it wouldn't fall off you. So you're tied in there really good. Well, that's great, except when you fall in the river, now you've got a life preserver on your back that's forcing you to face to, to float face down in the river, <laughs> and, uh, and you're being swept down the river, which is what happened to Marshall. And uh, the funny part was he was, you know, was forcing that it was like you're having an inflatable inner tube on your back, forcing his face to be underwater all the time he's being, you know, shot down this river. And all the time he's trying to dog paddle on one side to get his head out of the water, which he couldn't do. Uh, it was funny in retrospect, but uh, then it could have been his life. So I jumped down the other side and I ran down. He was finally... Uh, after uh, oh, 150 feet, able to uh, get to a shallow area to pull himself out. And I must say I was laughing, but it was probably out of hysteria more than, than uh, you know, than humor, because it, it was a very dangerous point. But we had several times that we laughed at ourselves, almost die, you know. I got to have that gallows humor. Yeah. I bet that you're, I mean, you're an accomplished climber. and both technically and mountaineering. So I imagine that came in pretty handy right about now. But yeah, I had some expertise and, and it uh, paid off in, in many, many times during the uh, expedition. So you're making your way up this, what's now becoming a canyon, mm -hmm. to still in search of the, the source. Yeah. And what happens next? Well, one thing I should probably insert there that I think is so important on expeditions like this and that's to have a sense of humor. You know, I mean, the, the worst parts, you know, life-threatening parts of an expedition like this, a time where you could uh, say, this is the end, we have to turn around, can be changed with a little humor, you know? And even those dangerous times, you know, we're joking about it. We knew how dangerous those things were, but um, a little humor not to not to diminish what the danger was, but to just put you in a frame of mind like, you know, we're doing what we love and, and, and uh, we'll take that chance and go for it. it. made a lot of difference. But anyway, we are at, um, at this place where the river is narrowing. It's getting very narrow in places now. We're starving. I mean, um, we're at a place where we probably should have turned around because we didn't know how long it would take to get out, but we're pushing it. And uh, now we're at the final, the final day where we're in a place where the, the canyon is so narrow that if there's any high, high water come from any kind of rains, there's no way that we can stay close to the river. And actually, there's no place that's flat that we can do it. So we spent part of that day looking for a place above the water uh, where we could plan our camp. And uh, miraculously, we found a place where the escarpment above us 
the kind of cliff above us, there was a place where a big chunk had fallen eons ago and um, made a kind of a, a, a stairways, kind of a step of rock blocks that came up maybe about 80 feet above the water, maybe not, maybe 50 or 60 feet above the water. And on top of that, there were some uh, small palms growing and a semi-flat area that was about uh, maybe five feet by eight feet. And we were able to climb up that and take our machetes out. And all this time we're using machetes, by the way. And we were able to cut a kind of a flat area that's, it's not flat, you know, as far as what we're on, but big enough where we can erect a... uh, a tent or an awning anyway. We had, we had an awning that we were sleeping underneath. And then we stuffed some of the, uh, some of uh, the stuff that we had chopped down to make it kind of flat. And we slept there that night. And so we knew this was the end. We couldn't, we had one more day, we could try it. The river was getting very narrow at this point and just trickles in some places. And so we thought this was it. Now this is a place that Eddie Littlebird was in awe of, but now he was kind of terrified of the place of the old ones, as he called it, this mysterious place where his ancestors came from. So he decided to stay there. So we we left him there and we said, uh, try to keep a fire going here, especially at night. We don't know how long it's going to take us the next day, but we're just going to go one more day. And that's it for us. If we make it fine, if we don't, we fine. You know, we've done the best we could. So remember telling him to make sure you keep a fire going. So we took off the next day. By this time, we're freezing. You know, both of us have colds now. You know, we're we're hacking a little bit because we're sleeping. uh, For the last week, we've been sleeping wet inside our sleeping bags, you know, and we didn't bring cold weather gear. uh, But we're still going. And the next day, we light out uh, there was one really tough spot that we got to where there was this deep pool that had sheer cliffs on either side. And the pool was maybe, I don't know, 30 feet across, something like that. And then a rapid coming out below it and a waterfall above it. And there was no way we could scale these these uh, sheer walls. To get past it, we would have had backtrack, I don't know, maybe a quarter mile and then try to get up above it. And there's no way we could do this on this last day. You know, we were beyond that. You know, we were emaciated. We were starving. We were tired. But we had a little tiny bit of food that we thought we could make it back to to our base camp. And, and hopefully then we didn't know how many weeks it would take to get out. So um, we just took a shot. We jumped in the uh, pool and kept trying to swim to get over to the waterfall. But we kept getting pushed downstream because the water was too, uh, the, the stream was too, too rapid. But finally, we found these little cracks in the side of the wall that we were able to cling to, stick our fingers in. It was pretty much smooth, but we were able to pull ourselves until we got to an eddy right by the waterfall. And then miraculously, we found these holds, these hidden holds behind the waterfall itself. And we were able to walk up the waterfall about 20 feet until we got to a ledge that we could get off the side and then we continued up. And if we hadn't found that, we never would have made it. It was amazing. But um, there were, it seemed like there were these miraculous 
miraculous hidden, I don't know what the word for it, but we were able to find these uh, miraculous ways to solve our situations. We were able to find these miraculous solutions that enabled us to get back these places that we thought were the end of the expedition. So anyway, we continued on. It got narrower and narrower, and finally, it was only a, a foot or two wide. We continued up that, and we got to a, a damp spot where it was uh, just barely coming out in the spring in this spot, and we knew we'd found the source. To us, it was this miraculous place that was a, that we celebrated the best we could. You know, we had a, a drink from this pure stream, uh, pure creek, uh, um, spring water, but uh, you know, it was just a dirty, filthy spot in the uh, <laughs> in the rainforest. But we hugged each other and we took a swig and uh, and then turned around because at this point we turned out we decided we were going to turn around at at 1 p.m. That would give us enough time to get back before dark. And in the rainforest, especially near the equator where we are, it's six o'clock, the sun's up, it's six o'clock, the sun's down, or very close to it. And there's really no dust. Before you descend, you're standing out there at the, at the spring that's the source. If we were standing next to you and we were looking around, what would we see? So. The source was not miraculously beautiful spot to anybody else except for ourselves, I think. We were just on a slope, kind of a rocky slope. Uh, there was foliage all around. Uh, there was just a little bit of water that was seeping out of the ground in this one spot. You couldn't see very far. Uh, it was very nondescript. It was nothing beautiful about it except, of course, to us, it was the most beautiful place on the planet. At that point, we knew we were in trouble because we had decided that we were going to turn around at 1 o'clock, 1 p.m., uh, no matter what, because that would enable us to get back to our camp with Eddie Littlebird that was above the stream by dark. And uh, in the rainforest, especially in the, on the equator, at 6 o'clock, it's light or starting to get light, but at 6 o'clock, it's pitch dark, and there's nothing else. It's raining now. There's no moon, or there's a, there is a moon, but because it's raining, we can't we can't see uh, any moon. There's no moonlight. There's nothing. It's literally pitch dark. Now it's past three o'clock, so we have three hours to get down. What took us all day to get up? The other problem we had was even though we had headlamps with batteries, by this time we had we brought plenty of batteries for the expedition. But because no matter how watertight you try to keep these, water seepages come, or who knows why, but now our batteries, our, our headlamps, at this point are lasting about, I think, one minute, one or two minutes, and then they go dead. And then if we leave them for an hour, they regenerate, and we can get maybe 20 seconds of light out of them. So we don't even have light. To uh, descend in the darkness is, uh, is foolhardy. It's dangerous. But anyway, here we are. We made it. We're deciding to go down now. So we made it, and now we're going to make our descent. We know that we have to go as quickly as possible because we went way past our safety point. And even though we're famished, we're exhausted and tired, we're literally places that we had 
carefully walked up before. We're jumping over little cliffs that we know we're going to be okay. We're jumping into pools in the water that is unsafe because we don't know how deep it is, but we're taking a, a, a calculated risk to get us down. For the most part, we're getting down okay, but there was one point where we were uh, uh, descending this rock wall, coming down this waterfall, and I was able to get it down at okay. And then uh, uh, Marshall behind me, he's uh, descending, and I hear this kind of a, a little scream and then a gasp and then nothing. And so I, I climbed back up to this spot where he had tried to descend, and it's a rock ledge that he was, that we had to climb down, kind of back down, so I, climbing, uh, down climbing foot first. And he had fallen here, and this was a deep V of a wedge of, of a rock, of a crack in the wall. And somehow he had fallen head first, and he had wedged his body head first into this deep V. And so it had stopped him from his head hitting the bottom of the V crack, but he still was wedged there and he couldn't get out. He was, it was like, uh, he looked kind of like uh, a bug that had been stuck in a crack that was kicking all its legs and arms and couldn't get out, but I was able to drag him out. And uh, after he, he, he was fuzzy there for a little bit. And, and I, I indeed think he got a concussion, but after that, he, uh, he woke up and, and we continued down. Scary moment, though. Yeah, super scary. Could have been the end. But um, another miraculous thing happened. We finally got down. So we would swim in the river and jump over little cliffs the best we could, getting down as quickly as we can. But we finally got down to where we thought our camp was, but it was pitch dark and we had no longer had headlamps that were working. This, I don't know, lucky, lucky thing happened. So we're getting down to where we thought our camp was, but we didn't know. We're walking in the stream, and we were at a place where we literally would have passed our camp, and then who knows what would have happened. We would have had to uh, spend the night in the rain, you know, and we were already a little sick, both of us. But I just happened to look up, and I see there was a break in the clouds, and the moon shone just for an instant. And at that very same instant, I see smoke going in front of the moon. Just that. Just an opening in the clouds, the moon, and smoke going past it. And then I knew that somewhere up there was our camp. If, it was, if those things hadn't aligned perfectly, we would have continued, and who knows how tough it would have been. But it, we then, uh, feeling our way, climbed up the rock wall to where our camp was and then spent the night. I would imagine that you were real in real danger of becoming very hypothermic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We were both we both shivered that night, but he had built a little fire, so we were able to warm ourselves. Right, but if you had not found that camp, that could have been a real problem. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, who knows what have, what would have happened? But you know, I think things like this happen a lot uh, during. Uh, serious expeditions, you know, and, and uh, you just kind of prepared, you know, and, and you say you have those lucky moments and, uh, and they are lucky, but, you know, we would have made our way somehow. We would have done something to get by. It would have been serious, 
I was once asked by a fella who wanted to write write a story about some of my expeditions, a ghostwriter. I said that he asked me once, was I ever scared? Did I think I was going to die on one of these expeditions? And I said, of course not. No, no, of course I didn't. You know, I'm prepared for these things. And uh, he became very disinterested after that. I didn't know then, but I know now, of course. He says he probably thought I was just some macho guy saying, yeah, I'm not going to die. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm never going to die. Uh, but for me, even though there are many times when you're in a life-threatening situation, uh, you just, you're in the frame of mind that you're not going to let that into your mind. You know, you're just going to look for the next situation, whatever the solution is. Okay. I'm in a situation like I could fall at any moment here, you know, and, uh, dangers all around, but, uh, I don't have time to think about that. I think about what my next move is so that I can keep clear headed, but I'm anything but macho about these things. You know, I think that the potential is around all the time, but I can see, you know, I mean, in retrospect, if I said, if you had asked me, did I think that, was there a possibility I could die? Oh yeah, there's a bunch of, and there was many times when I was very, very frightened. I was scared to death, but, in those situations, you don't let it enter your mind, you know. Preparation and focus. Yeah. So you, you scramble up the wall, you find the camp. What did Little Bird say? He was frightened. He was still scared. Well, he said that he was frightened that the river could uh, rise because he, now he experienced that before, which he hadn't experienced that stuff so much before. thought that even where we were, we could be swept away. But uh, I asked him about what did he think now about the old ones that he had talked about that were from this area, this, this kind of uh, mysterious place. And he, he, he didn't want to talk about it. So I think he was maybe a little, there were a lot of things going on, you know, in his, in his, in his mind culturally that were frightening, you know. And we were starving at the time anyway, so we all weren't doing too well. So for the next two days, three days, three days, I think, anyway, we headed downriver as quickly as we could. Of course, we're always looking for some place that we could gather foods or uh, hunt fish, but the river's in rapid. It's raining every day. There's, we're in a deep V canyon. There's no wildlife. We're just kind of walking zombies, especially towards the end there. In fact, there were several times where uh, I'd look over at one of those guys. We stopped for an instant, and they're leaning against a rock, fast asleep. They had like we were we were both holding, we cut some staffs that we were trying to uh, help ourselves because we were so weak. And a couple of us we had like sprained our ankles, and they had wedged this this uh, pole in front of them that held them against the rock and they were sleeping, standing up. It was pretty funny. But anyway, we continued down and finally made it to our camp. And it was on the sixth day. So it was the day when I had told those guys to leave. They hadn't left, uh, which was fantastic for us. Peculiar thing happened when he finally made it to camp. So our camp was on a bend in the river, an oxbow in the river where on the inside curve of 
jungle rivers, there's sometimes a sandbank that exposes, and that's where we set up their tents. So we come around the bend, and I and just as we come around the bend, then we see them in full sight. And I'm yelling as loudly as I can. We made it, you know, success. You know, our ex the expedition is a success. You know, we all made it. So the other native guy, he starts screaming, "All right, yes!" He's got his hands over his head. We made it, you know, fantastic, celebrating. And then uh, I see at the end of the sandbank or this spit of land that uh, our the, the tents are on is about maybe 50 feet long, 30 feet long. And I see Carlos, the filmmaker, he's at the end of the spit of, of sand, the sandbank, and he's turning, out, turning around and he's walking towards me, but his head's down. He, he doesn't respond to me yelling at, hey, Carlos, we made it. And uh, as I get up to the spit of land across the river, he's walking towards me. He walks right up to me within two feet, his head's down, and I'm yelling, Carlos, we made it, man. You know, it's a success. We all made it. And he, he raises his eyes and looks at me, and his eyes are glazed over. He turns around, drops his head, and he walks back down the length of the spit of sand. And then I notice where he's walking, he's created a trail, a trench, that's about a foot deep. And he walks down to the end, and then he sits down and puts his hand in his his head in his hands. Well, I walk down to him and I say, Carlos, what's going on? How, how are you? And after a few minutes, he finally collects his thoughts. And he said, um, at that moment, I could literally say I was crazy. You know, I was out of my mind a little bit. And I said, well, what happened? And he told me that as soon as we left the camp, when we'd first gotten there and set up to go for the source, that the three of us had left the camp. As soon as we turned the corner, the other native guy said to him, okay, let's leave. They're dead. We're never going to see them again. They're going to be killed by the natives here, by the SEA, the hostile natives. And he said, well, no, I'm not going to leave. You know, he said, they're, they're, we're never going to see them again. They're dead. You know, those natives are out there right now. And he says, no, forget it. We're staying. You know, I'm not leaving. For the next five days or whatever it was, six days, he said all day long, this native guy would tell him, we have to leave now. The natives are out there. They're just waiting, you know. And he said he couldn't stand it. After a while, he, um, he would leave the tent and he would start to go walking in the forest. And then the native would come out crying. He said, no, no, don't leave me. That, they're just waiting for us to separate. And then they'll kill you. You know, if you go out there, they'll kill you. So then he didn't leave, but he couldn't stand being in the tent with this guy because over and over again, he says, we're going to die. Those guys are already dead. So he said only, all he could do to keep his sanity was to walk up and down this spit of land, this 50 foot, over and over and over and over all day long until just as walking had created this trench that was a foot deep. But he did one thing that I still to this day is I think is heroic. We got back down there. We're all starving, all of us. They were able to actually catch two of these really small fish that we ate that night. But Carlos had saved, we had freeze-dried food that we had brought, right? At this, at this point, I, the entire expedition now, I had 
two freeze-dried food packages for one or two people. We had uh, the two fish that he had caught, two little tiny fish. And he had saved a container of, I think it was blueberry trail mix. It was just a little tiny package. But we were all starving. And he saved that as a celebration meal for us if we got back. And I think that was just heroic. He should have eaten that. He could have eaten that. But we all had a little bit of that trail mix, and it was uh, a great celebration. Very cool. I bet you that's the best tasting trail mix you've ever had. Oh, it was amazing. Absolutely. Now, you're making your way down the river? Yeah. So the next day, this was pretty interesting. So that night, we had these two freeze-dried packages for two meals each. So that's four meals. And we have five, uh, one, two, yeah, five people. Of, we're five people, so it'd be one meal, right, of each of us. So they said, let's break them out. Let's eat them. Let's eat them now. And I said, well, no, we can't do that, you know, because we don't know how long it's going to take. And they said, no, we're going to meet the boat in uh, three days. Three days, I think I said. I said, well, we don't know that. And I said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, what, what had happened was, when we sent half of our group back, when we divided our team and sent half of them back, the botanist and the one of the cameramen, we arranged for them. They said they would try to get a pecky pecky or kind of a rescue craft and travel from the Madre de Dios River, from Puerto Maldonado, where they would go, try to get a craft and then go up the Madre de Dios and then go up the heath as far as they could go, and then just wait there as long as they could to try to, and in a sense, rescue us at the end of the journey because we knew we'd be out of food, we'd be starving, we didn't know what would happen. I had estimated that if they could go all the way up river to where I thought this one other river intersected, the Rio Blanco, but nobody knew where that was, even if it was there, but on these military maps, they saw that there was some kind of a river there, and they named it that. And I figured that maybe that would be three days from where we would descend from our farthest point up where we would make camp on the Heath River. This was all speculation, all just wondering. So here we are now. The next day, we're going to inflate our kayaks and make the first descent of the Heath, I hoped it would be three days, but I'm just guessing. Nobody had ever done this before. So now our team here said, well, let's eat all of our food. We're starving. You know, we can go for three days without food. But And then I said, well, look, we don't know if it's going to be three days. And they said, well, what do you mean? Well, it could be a month. We don't know. What do you mean by that? Now they started getting excited. What do you mean? You know, what do you mean it could be a month? We can't make a month, you know. And I said, well, no, no, no. Maybe we... The, Probably we'll see them in three days, you know. And I had this kind of settled down. It, you know, nerves were on edge right here. People are starving. And I said, well, maybe, probably we will, but let's eat one, you know. We'll just divide it. And then the next day, maybe we'll meet another one. Maybe, you know, we got to stretch it out just in case. We don't know. Even though, you know, I knew everybody, we're trusting our lives to each other. I, I did sleep with the freeze-dried food that night. Touchy thing. And then the next day, everybody's exhausted. You know, we're starving to death. We're exhausted. Nobody wanted to get up. We wanted to sleep in, you know. And so I'm yelling at people, we got to get going. 
And uh, they said, no, no, we need to sleep, you know, and we didn't get going till like 10 o'clock or something like that or nine or 10 o'clock. And I said, look, we're going to lose half the day of traveling. And so if we do this every day, what normally takes us three days could take us five days. And that's another couple of days without food. And so every day it was very tough to get people going. And we finally got down, you know, I had to kind of yell at people to get going. And finally, we got down to the Rio Blanco, where we were supposed to meet those people. They're not there, of course. So the following morning, where I had to try to help, you know, yell at people to get going, they're up before me. You know, they're saying, no, we got to get going. And uh, we headed out. But it was, uh, it was amazing, you know, that what was amazing for me was how the human body can work having no food. You know, we were all skeletons at that point. But there was one thing that saved us, I think, in that we had 12 hours of darkness because our, our uh, headlamps wouldn't work. Now we were getting 30 seconds of battery, you know. And uh, we'd get just enough light if we had to go pee or something. And, and it was a moonless night now. So it's literally pitch dark where you put your hand in front of your face and you can't see your hand. So we're feeling around. So there's nothing to do. You can't read anything. You can't look at anything. There's no light. So you have to either you're sleeping or you're just laying in bed and resting that way. And I think that really helped to keep our bodies moving, you know, when there was a time where normally we wouldn't be able to. But we continued down and a miraculous thing, another miraculous thing happened is as soon as we got out of the into the Amazon basin proper, where the mountains flattened out, and we got into the Amazon basin where it's pretty much flat. Two things happened. One thing was I was in the heaviest rainstorm I've ever been in my life. Just before we got to that place, we heard uh, what sounded like a freight train. And I've been in heavy rains before, but this was amazing. Imagine if you've ever stood in front of a train, you know how deafening that is. That's what it was like, and the rain hadn't hit us yet. The, the, the natives, they knew it happened before, as we were just starting to hear a, a little bit of rumble in the distance. They said, we've got to get up and set up our tents now. Beach, our uh, kayaks, set up our tents now, which we did. And we immediately started setting up our tents. And it, in that, God, I don't know, five minutes from when they first heard it, we were in a downpour that was like literally a solid sheet of rain falling. Our tents that we set up immediately were being swept away with the rain. We had to dig ditches around our tent to try to keep the rain from pushing them away. I set out a water bottle which just has a small, like, two-inch opening, right? That filled in seconds. How does do drops in a two-inch opening fill in seconds? It was miraculous. Within half an hour, it was gone again. And then the river was in huge rapids. And I was was, literally at the point where we were going to try to get in the river immediately, even during the rains, because we could get down the river faster, even though we had to go down some waterfalls. That stopped, and then, uh, and then we packed up our tents because we knew we could continue going and, and kept going. The other miraculous thing was shortly after that, we came into the flatlands, the Amazon Basin proper, 
where we were out of the mountains, out of the steep sections, no more rap, uh, waterfalls. And just at that point, the rain stopped, the clouds parted, and we were in sunshine for the first time in weeks, total sunshine. And immediately we started seeing wildlife everywhere. All the wildlife that we were trying to find before to hunt, to collect, now it's everywhere. We're seeing howler monkeys over here. We're seeing capuchins. We're seeing spider monkeys. Uh, uh, one miraculous thing. We came around a bend in the river, and because we were moving so slowly now, we were in the flats, and because it was a sharp bend in the river, and because we were downwind, we see directly in front of us a jaguar crossing the stream. You know, the stream was only about three feet deep, two or three feet deep, but this it's indelibly etched in my mind. You know, you have this intense green of the canopy that is so bright it hurts your eyes, and then this bright yellow, orange, and black cat of this jaguar crossing the river, and we got to within 30 feet of this thing. It was incredible. You know, never wouldn't happen in a, in a million times of this situation. His head was down, slowly crossing the water. Maybe, you know, one thing is jaguars, they're big cats. They actually like water, unlike other, animal, other cats. And so it's not unusual to see them in the water. But he's slowly walking and then fine. And he didn't hear us because we stopped paddling. And we were down wind, so he didn't smell us. And then finally looked over. And then the last 20 feet, I think he sprang once and he was gone in a flat. But I'll always remember that moment. We saw giant river otters. I mean, it was miraculous. That's when we were wondering whether we should stop and try to hunt there. But we had found some bananas, those uh, we found some of those plantains that we were able to eat and some turtle eggs that sustained us. Finally, the next day, a scene I'll, I'll always remember, we hear this sound in the distance, this clacking. It's, it sounds like a pecky, 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 pecky. That's why they call them pecky, peckies. They're these one-stroke engines. We see the boat coming around the bend in the river. I see these, uh, these four white egrets flying in front of it in a V formation. I mean, it always re reminds me of a movie, some, something that, uh, you know, some glorious moment they would make. But uh, that was our boat. We met it and um, ended up beaching it and eating as much as we could there. They had traded for some taper meat and capybara meat. And I think I ate half a gallon of strawberry jam and crackers and everything else. Then for the next four days, I think, we just sat on that pecky pecky and ate. Well, one last incident. We came to an area called the Pampas del Heath, and they are really mysterious uh, cleared areas in the rainforest on both the Bolivian and the Peruvian side. And uh, nobody knows how they came into being. Uh, nobody knows what made that. There are thoughts that maybe the indigenous tribes hundreds or thousands of years ago cleared the land there, and then uh, the land was never overtaken by jungle again. But there are vast swaths of uh, just grasslands, like you'd see in the savannah somewhere. There is a military outpost there, a Peruvian outpost, and that it, it is um, 
it was manned by one person. And uh, we ended up stopping there, of course, to talk to the person. And uh, it, we were immediately arrested for being in a political sensitive area, that this is a restricted zone, nobody can go in this area. And so I told him, well, if we had known it would, it, that it was restricted, you know, and that it was outlawed to be here, we would, of course, gotten permits to go there. And he says, no, you wouldn't, because you can't get a permit, because it's restricted. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I was trying to be nice to him. And so anyway, he took down our names and um, made a document and said we were under arrest, that when we traveled downriver and got to a military outpost on the Madre de Dios River, there was a big outpost there, we had to turn ourselves in. But then he became friendly and asked what we were doing. I said, we made it to the source of the Heath. And he was very interested because he had tried to make an expedition up there. And he had gotten not nearly as far as we were, but uh, he got into a river just below where, where we had made our crossing, discovered a river and called it the Pongo after his name. And it uh, turned out to be a nice guy. But anyway, we, under arrest, under self-arrest, we continued downriver. And then uh, we saw a few uh, Native people on the side, a few uh, hunting parties where they had uh, had their, their catch that they were drying, and, but eventually got down to the last and only village on the Sonani, on the Heath River, which was Eddie Littlebird's village, the headman that we had brought. So we stopped there for the night. We had a discussion with one of their, with their headman. So we stopped there for the night, and they had a, a traditional headman, uh, also a shaman, holy man. I had a talk with him because he was the oldest man in the village. I think he was, they, they thought he was around 80 or 90. They didn't know how old. But it turns out that his father was the headman before him, the village uh, chief, and that at that time there were a lot of villages on the lower heath and found out there were also a lot of villages on the upper heath. This, uh, he told me that as a boy, his father would tell him that there was always conflict between the two, the two uh, different village areas. And he said one day uh, there was warring between them. And he said one day his father, the headman, gathered all the villages on the lower Sonani, on the lower heath. So he told me that his father, the, uh, the chief before him, the headman, told him that there was always warring between the, the villages on the upper heath and the villages on the lower heath. And he said that one day his father made a war party, gathered all the people, all the warriors from the lower heath villages, and they went up and attacked all the villages on the upper heath, the upper Sonani, and they killed every man. And he said that uh, after they killed them, they took their scalps, the, they cut their hair off, and they put the hair under their armpits, and then they danced all night around a fire. And that way they absorbed all the power, all the energy, all the bravery from the people that they had killed, all the upper Sonani warriors. And he says, after that, we never had a problem with the people from the upper Sonani. And, and I thought, well, of course, they killed all the men. Of course, they didn't have any problems. But he said all the women dispersed and they went and gathered in some villages where they, some of the lower villages, 
and some of uh, other villages on other other rivers. But he said, um, as time went on, the, all of the villages, the, the lower Sonani villages got smaller and smaller, and they all came and lived with this one village on the bottom of the heath, which they call Sonani. And that's, that's the story of what happened. Now, they must have thought Little Bird was uh, quite the hero. Oh, yeah. He was the man, you know. At this point, they didn't have a, a single chief. They had kind of a, a conglomerate of the elders, and he was one of the elders. But he was held in hugely self-esteem at that time. It was funny, when I, um, when I met Shai Kamen, the, the, uh, the shaman or headman, he was working on a bow and arrow, a fishing arrow. These, uh, the bows are about six or seven feet long, and the arrows are also the same. And it was just just this beautiful, long fishing arrow that he had just finished. I was able to trade that from him. He gave it to me. So I have that up in my uh, up on my wall in my house with a bunch of other things. Very cool. Yeah. What lessons do you think you learned from that expedition? I know you shared some of them, but I have to imagine that you are not the same person who came out of that jungle that went in. How did it change you and what did you learn? Yeah, it changed me in a lot of ways. Physically, um, I learned that my body can do a lot more than I thought it could do. I've been hungry before. I've been starving. I've been tired. I've, I've been at what I thought was my physical end, but I, know no, I now know that that's not my physical end. I can go a lot further. Psychologically, I know that I can go into a lot a lot more threatening situations than I thought, areas that I thought um, would be difficult for me to make decisions with because of the dangers involved or situations with relationships or other things. Um, they're easier to make now. You know, our, our body doesn't know whether something that is emotionally threatening or something that's physically threatening our brain doesn't know the difference of that. It's equally the same. And if you can push through that moment, that point where you think you can't go any further, every time you do it, you remember that, and it gets a little easier. And that doesn't mean that you do things that are, that are stupid and that you don't, that, you know, a threatening moment that you're not prepared to do, that you, that you uh, haven't intellectually known that you've taken all the steps so it's safe for you, but it can still be terrifying. But it means that we can push through that terrifying moment. I think things are like that when you go on an expedition, you have those tough times every time you do it. Not only do you intellectually know that, yeah, you've had this, you can do it again, but physically there's something that's easier every time. You grow from the experience, you grow from the hardship, the fellowship, and just just the sights and the scene that you saw. That's right. Marvelous. That's right. And, you know, the thing is, it's the opposite from being macho. Because I know every time I go on a rock climb, every time I surf a big wave, or if I go on an expedition and I'm in a frightening place, I'm terrified. Of course I am. You know, you're stupid not to be. But what you do is you learn that being terrified, what that can do is just Get your adrenaline going, clear your mind so you can make smart decisions. 
It just means that you can't be stupid about something. But when you're macho, you just think you're above all that stuff, that you have no fear, that the idea is to eliminate the fear. No, no, no. The, the, the place to be is to have the fear and then to know that that's telling you that you're in an unfamiliar place. It's something where you have to kick your brain up a little bit so that you can be safe. It's just a simple thing. The fear is an important thing. I used to tell people that, uh, you know, fear is just like pain. You know, we don't want pain, but let's say you get cut on your back. Somebody st stabs you in the back and you're bleeding out. If you didn't have pain, you wouldn't know that. What it is, is it's just your body telling you that you have to address something. And that's the same thing with, with fear. You just have to address the situation you're in. Interesting. Well, Bruce, this has been a fascinating conversation. For people who want to continue to follow your exploits, how would they do that? Well, you, know, you can go to um, BruceBaron.com. Uh, or the easiest thing is to go to BaronAdventures.com. B-A-R-R-O-N, Adventures with an S, dot com. And you also, don't you have a photography site? I do. And that's Bruce Barron. It's Bruce Barron Photography, right? I believe so. <laughs> and I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, have a, a, I do have a photography site. It is BruceBaronPhotography.com. And I highly recommend it. I'm just starting to learn photography, and I got a chance to review your images, and very nice, very nice. Thanks a lot. It's, uh, it's got to be the artist that uh, you started out to be coming out. Yeah, that's right. I guess, uh, I, guess I kept a little, bit, little of it going. You're right. Well, Bruce, I hope we get to chat again. Oh, we definitely will, my friend. It's great, great talking to you. And I look forward to the next time. We'll see you down the road. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>